the National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, A History of War in 100 Battles, presented by Richard Overy. Now, any, any of you who are familiar at all with my other books will perhaps wonder why I've written a book like this, The History of War in 100 Battles, uh, which is a bit different, I think, from my more academic uh, publications. So I need to confess, I think, right from the start, that I was asked to write it by the publisher uh, to go with another series of hundreds this and hundreds that, but then it kind of grew into a, this project. Uh, and I was quite attracted to it. I was attracted, really, because almost all my work has been on the 20th century, predominantly on the Second World War. Uh, and here was a chance to go back over three or 4,000 years to look at bits of history I really knew nothing about. Uh, and for me, it was a, a, a very interesting voyage of discovery, um, finding out a great deal about battles. In the course of finding out a great deal about these battles, it made me reflect more generally on the nature of battle uh, in history, and that's what I'm going to be talking about this afternoon. Now, choosing a hundred battles from the thousands of battles that there have been in world history, of course, is a challenging task. And if any of you have picked this book up already in the bookshop and flicked through the hundred battles to see if your favourite battle is there, and found that it isn't, um, I'm afraid there's nothing that I can do about that. Choosing a hundred was extremely difficult, and I've had, obviously... Uh, some uh, flack from people who didn't find their favourite battle there. But the 100 battles actually were chosen because each battle I wanted the battle to say something. Um, but it had to say something within a number of distinct categories, which were, again, the uh, the publisher's choice. The publisher said, you can't do a straight chronology because there are lots of those, you know, battle one to battle 100. Um, and they wanted it divided up into a number of themes. And the themes are leadership, uh, against the odds, innovation, deception, courage under fire, and in the nick of time, which is really the same thing as saying good fortune, which is uh, a feature of uh, a great many of the battles uh, included uh, in the book. And I thought at first, well, I don't really want these themes, that you've chosen them, and I'm not quite sure whether battles really fit into all these themes. But as I went through my compiling my list... I found actually the themes worked really very well. Now, a great deal of, a great number of the battles I'm writing about will have two or three of these factors against the odds, leadership, innovation. Um, but uh, I've chosen battles where the key feature, it seems to me, is one of these things the quality of leadership, the importance of a particular innovation, uh, the importance of sheer courage under fire. Um, and so, in a sense, the battles chose themselves and fitted, I think, into those themes um, quite neatly. Now, although, again, the publisher insisted this was going to be a history of war in a hundred battles, uh, the first thing I want to say is that it's not a history of war. It is a history of battles, and they're distinct things. Wartime, of course, can go on for a very long time indeed, whether you're talking about the Punic War, the Napoleonic Wars... Uh, the First or Second World War, are full of battles. So it's not about wartime. And the other striking thing I think you'll find about these battles is that many of the ones in the book are not decisive battles. Either. They're not battles that end a war. Um, they're not necessarily turning points. And that's, again, something that didn't really uh, interest me. 
And indeed, many of the battles are fought by commanders who later on face complete defeat. Napoleon is a good example, perhaps. You might think of uh, Erich von Manstein, the German Second World War commander. What I wanted to consider were battles as discrete events in their own right. What are their common characteristics? Uh, Why fight battles? Uh, What happens to the men involved in that fighting? What kind of things do they have in common across a three or four thousand year period? And once you focus on battle as an event, uh, I was struck at how many common features there are across the whole period uh, that I'm talking about. Um, now, most military writers uh, like to think that war has evolved from primitive skirmishes and the prehistoric age all the way through to uh, the electronic battlefield of the 21st century. And of course, at one level, it has evolved. evolved. Armies are larger and better organized. The technology has changed, of course, uh, out of all recognition. Although we should not forget, even in the late 20th century, you can still get quite a long way with a bayonet and a knife. It's not all electronic. But what struck me immediately when I looked at all these battles is that the things that actually determine the outcome of battle, who wins, who loses... A few of the battles here are stalemates, in fact. The so-called defeat of Attila the Hun, the field of Chalon in France, was not really a defeat, uh, more of a draw, um, but Attila left, which is, of course, what the uh, Gallic Roman army wanted. And most of them, as well, most of you know, it's defeat or victory. And what struck me is that, that the same mix of factors w- have worked right across those three or four thousand years, the importance of leadership, the importance of good intelligence, uh, the importance um, of um, courage on the battlefield, the importance of deception, uh, and of course that ingredient of luck, which so many commanders have needed at the last moment uh, in a particular battle. Now, of course, the technology is different over the period we're talking about. The historical circumstances are different, of course. Nobody would would pretend that the historical circumstances of um, uh, the Egypt of the pharaohs was the same as the the historical circumstances of the the two Gulf Wars, uh, although, in fact, they're very close to each other. Historical circumstances change as well. Um, But what I want to do in a moment is really to explore some of the common factors, perhaps, that link battles together. But before I do that, I wanted to reflect on a number of questions. Um, When do battles start? Where do battles start? And perhaps a more fundamental question, why fight? Now, these are the kind of questions, of course, that military historians have asked for a, a long time, but it's worth reminding ourselves. For a long time... 19th, 20th century, there were arguments that human beings are uh, programmed to be violent. Nothing we can do about it. That Men fight. Uh, and that primitive man must have fought as well. Now, a great deal of work has been done by archaeologists and prehistorians trying to show whether early man actually was as violent as we um, are led to believe. And you get a rather ambiguous record. In the United States, for example, where a lot of uh, very good prehistorical archaeology has been done, it was found that in 
the southwestern United States, uh, Stone Age communities of 10,000 years ago, 10, 5,000 years ago, uh, there's no evidence of weapons. Uh, no evidence uh, in, in the skulls and skeletons that have been recovered of physical violence of the kind you find elsewhere, skulls broken in by stone axes. Uh, villages where there were no ramparts uh, and no stockades. And the assumption there was that, uh, that, that this was a, a, a largely peaceful, uh, these were largely peaceful communities. There was no fighting, no violence. But archaeologists then looked at the prehistoric record in the northeastern United States for almost exactly the same period. And what they found was the exact opposite. Plenty of evidence of broken-in skulls, um, skeletons buried in pits uh, with arrowheads, um, stockades around the villages, uh, endemic violence, it seemed, going on for really quite a long period of time. In Europe, too, very much the same kind of uh, result that's been found also long periods uh, in prehistory where there's very little evidence of violence, direct violence. Other periods, particularly the period when Homo sapiens and Neanderthal man were cohabiting in Europe, uh, when there is evidence of, of violence, mainly done, I'm afraid, by Homo sapiens to Neanderthal man, um, skulls broken in, that, that kind of, of evidence. Now, what's clear is that, that you know, violence is not something that man, men were programmed to do and always did, and in every context. Clearly, they didn't. So when did fighting begin? Well, in prehistory, I think we're probably talking about ambushes, skirmishes, one-on-one -on -one fights. We're not really talking about battles. As organized bodies of men brought to a battlefield, committed against each other for a day or more of fighting. Archaeologists have spent a lot of time trying to decide where these things, real battles, really began. And it's very interesting that uh, looking across an almost 2,000 year period from about 1500 BC to 500 AD, they've been able to uh, identify 288 clear battles. And of those 288 battles, 94% of them were in the area of the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and Southwest Asia. One might well say that this is an area which is still the site of battle uh, two and a half thousand years later. It certainly hasn't gone away from that region, but 94% of battles were in that region. Um, 75 of those battles in civil wars, mainly Roman civil, civil wars. But they were only able to identify two in China across that whole period, two proper battles uh, across that whole period. So we are talking about a Middle Eastern European uh, phenomenon. So it's no accident, perhaps, that the very first recorded battle, recorded because Ramses II went back and insisted on having a frieze, uh, stone frieze carved, showing uh, the battle and his success in the battle, uh, was the Battle of Kadesh uh, in 1274 BC, a battle between the Egyptians and the Hittites, both of whom had large armies mobilized in the field. Almost certainly battles had occurred a bit before that, but it's, uh, I think, not difficult for us to argue that battles are really invented in our modern sense uh, in the Middle East around 12 to 1300 BC. 
Now, since then, of course, there's been an exponential growth in battles. But an overwhelming majority of battles, even in that later period, of course, have been in Europe, Mediterranean Basin, and the Middle East. There's something about this strange crucible uh, which has made people fight and fight for two or three thousand years. And we might reflect a bit on that perhaps in the question time. I don't have an easy answer, I think, to that particular question. But why do they fight? Why do men fight? Um, in the book, I've identified three broad categories, but uh, trying to explain battle, of course, is, is a complex um, piece of social, political uh, history, or even anthropology, if you like. The first battle is about resources. And the evidence of violence, for example, in prehistorical United States was based almost largely, it's concluded, on changes in the climate, so that water dies out in one area, and so a whole lot of tribes have moved somewhere else to try and get hold of the water or the game, uh, and fighting then uh, is the result. Fighting for resources, for land, for treasure, for water. Now, again, I think there's been a, a view among historians, this is something that people might have done 5,000 years ago, but progressively did much less of it. But I think we do need to be reminded that the Second World War uh, was fought precisely for resources. Japan's drive to the um, to Southeast Asia, uh, to the Dutch East Indies and so on, was a drive for raw materials which they lacked uh, and which they thought was necessary uh, for, their, uh, for the survival of their empire. Hitler, of course, was driven by the idea uh, that in the modern age, population had grown so fast that it would always outstrip the amount of land and the quantity of resources that would be available. Indeed, Lebensraum, living space, adequate land and adequate resources uh, was a justification for his uh, imperialism in Eastern Europe and Russia. But indeed, it's inseparable, I think, from the struggles for Lebensraum that must have gone on between primitive peoples uh, five or 10,000 years ago. The second thing is ideology, and the difference, of course, between modern man, perhaps, and primitive man is, uh, or sorry, prehistoric man, it's simply that, that we produce rationalizations for battle, why we fight. Now, when I talk about ideology, for most of the period covered by this book, I'm really talking about religion, of course, and religious conflict, and it's astonishing how many of these battles over the whole of the period I'm talking about, really religious conflicts. Uh, many of them, of course, involving Christianity, many of them involving uh, Islam. But ideology, of course, can take other forms as well. Uh, exporting the French Revolution, for example, uh, the triumph of, uh, of fascism in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. Ideology can drive you to war uh, for a variety of reasons. The third thing is hubris. I'm very glad to see that Alistair Horn has just published a book with that title, Hubris, uh, to explain war in the 20th century, war in the modern age. Um, hubris, again, takes a variety of forms, but it is basically uh, a, a kind of, uh, well, it's, it's a mix of, of pride, um, fantasies about uh, what, what you're going to be able to achieve, um, a, a drive for success and triumph and so on, even against the odds. And hubris is clearly characteristic, particularly of European society in much of the last uh, 1,500 years, where kings have gathered around them bodies of warrior aristocrats whose job is really to make war. 
uh, and they do it for glory, they do it for treasure, they do it um, for dynastic ambition, they do it for hubris, because they want to be better and bigger uh, than they actually are. Uh, and indeed, it's quite interesting that Ian Kershaw, in his two volumes on Hitler, chose hubris as the title of the second volume, Hitler, 1936-1945, consumed by hubris, belief that he could change the world and that he alone had the capacity to do it. Now, a lot of the battles in the book actually involve a mix of those things, actually. I mean, they're not exclusive. Um, uh, a drive for resources, hubris, um, uh, ideological imperatives uh, can often be, find, can be found working together, and indeed working together as late, as I've said, as the Second World War, or indeed perhaps, when I say, as late as Saddam Hussein. Now, I want to talk a bit more now about battles in general. And the first question I want to ask, because it's a question that will strike anybody reading a hundred battles, the accounts of a hundred battles, is what makes men fight? What sustains their will to fight? Now, I'm reminded of the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who when he reflected on fighting, he said that the rational thing for men to do is to run away. Uh, they preserve themselves. So we've got to try and find some way to explain what otherwise, according to Hobbes, is a rather irrational thing, to move onto a battlefield, uh, to hammer away at each other with spears or axes, um, or later on with machine guns and artillery. Now, clearly, coercion plays a very important part. Um, a, a great many of the, the men, um, slaves and so on, uh, who have found themselves in battle over the course of the last few thousand years have been there because they've been forced to be there. But I don't think coercion is uh, is a very good explanation for a great deal of the fighting that I've described in the book. It depends, of course, on the nature of the threat or the perceived threat. Uh, if it really is a threat which you regard as a, as a challenge either to your honour or to uh, your uh, material well-being or survival, uh, that, of course, would encourage... Uh, uh, men to rally to the flag. I should add, by the way, that I'm talking about men, in case you wonder why I said why, what makes men fight. Historians have been trying to discover how many women actually fought uh, in uh, conflicts in the early modern and modern age. In the French Revolution, an estimated 30 to 50 has been found. In the American Civil War, um, 400 women. But these are tiny fractions. And in the First and Second World War, of course, with the exception of the terrifying women's division in the Red Army, women uh, were in uniform but didn't fight. It's a male activity, and we have to face the fact that it's a, a male activity. So what makes them fight if it's not just coercion or it's not just the nature of the threat? Well, clearly social discipline plays a part. Societies expect men to go off and fight in their defence, and there's a great deal of peer pressure on people uh, to accept that reality. Cultural or religious imperatives, particularly religious imperatives, fighting on behalf of the prophet, fighting for Christianity um, in the medieval crusades. Loyalty to a particular leader or a particular cause is also, of course, clearly important. And then, of course, there are other things that you might get from fighting. And for much of the period that I'm talking about, people were not paid regularly, soldiers were not paid regularly. 
uh, what they got from fighting was booty. And booty came in a variety of different forms. I mean, it could be uh, treasure, it could be sex, it could be land, all kinds of things which you might get as a result of joining in the fight. And indeed in Islam, in the Middle Ages, if you conquered a town, Islamic law allowed three days of looting. Uh, accounts of those three days are horrifying, the ones that we uh, still have. But three days of looting, and that was when the soldiers got what they'd come to fight for. With the sacking of Constantinople, for example, the uh, Muslim soldiers were, were seen to be herding slaves off from Constantinople, tied together in big groups, moving along with the, with the slaves dragged behind, carrying great bales of uh, material, of what gold or jewels they could find, etc., etc. Um, it was what they expected, and indeed the long time it took to carry out the siege almost led to a rebellion um, in the Sultan's camp because people were impatient to get their hands on the things that they'd been told were in Constantinople. Now, of all the things that British historians have identified about why people fight or what keeps them fighting, there are two things, I think, which uh, people have focused on a lot. One, of course, is loyalty to a leader, leadership. How soldiers identify, soldiers or sailors identify with the, the, the leader, the extent to which the leader can inspire troops or sailors um, to do what's required. It's quite striking, for example, that with Nelson, who died halfway through, or less than halfway through the Battle of Trafalgar, that people kept fighting, even when the news was spreading through the fleet, um, on his behalf. Uh, an interesting example, I think, of somebody inspiring his men uh, from beyond the grave. But leadership clearly is very important. And there are many battles here where the leaders decide that things are not going well, and they scarper. Edward II at uh, the Battle of Bannockburn suddenly decided things were not going well. He and his retinue went off. The other knights saw them going, didn't know quite what to do. And then Robert the Bruce, of course, led that famous, uh, which if you've seen the film, that famous charge uh, with the, uh, the, the, uh, the Highlanders and Islanders uh, down the bank at uh, Edward's army, and Edward's army turned tail and fled. When your leader gives up, or Napoleon in, in, in Russia in 1812, it, it, the effect is immediately demoralizing. You can't really see any longer why, if you know, they go, why do you have to stay? In modern warfare, of course, the leader, or the commander, is often a long way away, somewhere in some chateau or some tent. What you rely on then, of course, are subordinate leaders, but that's still just as important. You need to see them, you need to know they're there, you need to have confidence uh, in leadership, and that's an extraordinarily important factor in battle. The other thing that people have identified is the small group that you can identify with the leader and be inspired by what the leader's doing, but a leader, of course, in the end is out there somewhere. Well, in early battles at the front, in later battles at the back. But um, the other important thing is a small group. Loyalty to the people immediately around you. And one of the striking things about these battles, all these battles, the accounts we have of early battles, Roman battles, for example, all the way through uh, to the battles of the Second World War, is how important that small group, or primary group as it's called, how important that is to uh, a, a soldier. Confidence that the people around are going to help. Confidence in the, the, the leader of the platoon or the small group or whatever it is. 
it is again an essential ingredient of battlefield discipline. Um, when that breaks down, when the lieutenant or the sergeant is killed, it, it can lead to immediate demoralization or confusion, a situation evident, for example, on the uh, Western Front in the First World War, when officers were often the first, often the first people um, to be killed. But it's, it's evident uh, right the way through the history of these battles. What's also interesting, I think, is that people fight in small groups. We always think about a battlefield being a battlefield, everything and everybody. And, of course, to the historian it is, looking back at it, we move these armies around, these divisions about and so on, uh, as if we were playing a game of risk. Um, but that's not how people experience it on the battlefield. On the battlefield, people experience it as the people just around you. And in earlier battles, the people you're going to kill are the people just in front of you. Um, and most battles up until, well, even really up to the Second World War too, most battles are a series of small fights which merge together into what historians call a battle. And small fights can go on all over the place. They can, be, they can make the battlefield extremely confusing. And there are some famous battles here where the, the, the eventual winner had no idea they were winning because they couldn't see what was happening. Had no idea they could see the skirmishes going on. But whether you've actually won, I mean, an interesting one was um, the German Field Marshal Moltke the Elder at the Battle of Königgrätz, which basically decided the future of Germany. But all afternoon he thought he was losing. He said, what's happening? I'm not, I can't, I've got no sense of what's happening. Uh, news of the Prussian reinforcements had not arrived and so on. And for a long time, he thought this was a battle that he was losing. But in fact, it's a battle that the Prussian soldiers in front of him won overwhelmingly, not just you know by chance, but won overwhelmingly. Because they fought in small groups. They, small, they fought their fight. And each of those fights uh, was successfully concluded. So leadership on the one hand, but small group cohesion on the other, I think are two critical things in explaining the battlefield. What's interesting, of course, is when that breaks down. Because from the very earliest battles, whether it's Thermopylae or Salamis or whatever, um, all the way through to the battles in the 20th century, um, it takes an extraordinary courage to stay on the battlefield, not to do the Hobbesian thing and run away. Uh, it takes a great deal of courage to overcome the fear. Now, fear can sometimes, I suppose, be a disabling emotion. But the evidence from uh, these battles is that fear is a very strong emotion among people about to go into battle, or indeed in battle too. Uh, and so the first thing you've got to be able to do uh, is to overcome fear, um, which you do, of course, I mean, by trusting in God or by a kind of fatalism, or it won't happen to me, or all kinds of ways in which you rationalize it. Um, but the striking thing, I think, is, is the courage needed to sustain yourself in battle. Now, there's no doubt, and there are plenty of accounts of this, that adrenaline kicks in at the battle moment. Indeed, there's plenty of examples of soldiers getting really fed up and demoralized because they weren't fighting. They were being made to march 60 kilometers somewhere and then having to, to sit with nothing to eat and so on and so on. And then when they get in a battle, the adrenaline kicks in, and, and that's the moment at which they become a different kind of being. But fear has been characteristic of fighting right across this period. 
Um, and it's quite interesting. Alexander the Great, for example, um, when he defeated Darius at Guagamala, which is one of the earliest and most famous battles, he noticed how frightened his soldiers were because they could see the Persian campfires in the distance. The Persian army was allegedly 100,000 men, and so the campfires stretched for miles. And his soldiers, he could see, were worried as they saw this because they had far fewer campfires. Um, and so he made a sacrifice to the god of fear. And his soldiers saw that, and he told them that he'd made this sacrifice, they had nothing else to worry about. And the following day, of course, they won an overwhelming and extraordinary victory. But what happens when you can't overcome that, or when courage fails? What happens when people flee the battlefield? Um, I mean, this is a very interesting moment because a great many of the accounts we have of battles show that soldiers can be battling away, hacking away whatever they're using against the enemy one minute, and the next minute they've done tools and they're racing away as fast as they can go. Now, I've said that leadership is really important, and, and once you think your leaders have let you down, um, then demoralization very quickly um, sets in. What's also interesting, I think, for many of his accounts is how infectious that, that crisis can be. You can have a, a collapse at one part of the battlefield and then suddenly other, others still fighting get some sense of what's going on behind them and then think there must be something they don't know about. Um, and so they begin the, the flight as well. A good example is Waterloo, actually, where the Imperial Guard is finally released towards the end of the battle, right at the end of the battle, just as Wellington has ordered the uh, Allied armies to move forward. As they move forward, the Imperial Guard, of course, is overwhelmed, and, and, the, uh, and they see images of these soldiers on their knees begging for mercy or crying. And it's an extraordinary image, really, because these are the elite of Napoleon's army, um, people you would think would go on literally fighting to the death. But once that crack has appeared once somebody knows that some group uh, on the battlefield is retreating, giving up. As I said, it spreads with a remarkable infection and very quickly the whole of the battlefield is likely to be in chaos as people try to escape. Now that, in, of course, in some ways is the worst thing to do because if the army in front of you is not too tired, as sometimes happens, it's going to pursue you. Like the Prussians who pursue the French after the Battle of Waterloo, they cut down anybody they see. There's no reason to take prisoners. Um, so that actually that moment when you crack isn't much better for you than if you'd actually stayed there uh, fighting to the death. The Battle of Hastings, again, a good example. Thousands of Harold's soldiers did stand there back-to-back, uh, -back, bravely fighting to the end until they were cut down by the Normans. But a fraction, realizing it was all over, ran, uh, and they were hunted down by William's cavalry and again slaughtered to a man. But that moment on the battlefield, that turning point, is, I think, a very interesting one, and one which historians are starting, I think, to pay much more attention to. Studies of historical studies of morale are difficult to uh, carry out for obvious reasons, but, but that, that moral climate on one side or the other, what makes people give up, uh, remains, I think, in a teasing question, I think, in military history. Now, it's also worth observing, of course, that victory can have its costs as well. Um, there are plenty of examples in the book um, of people who'd fought um, a, a, a noble victory 
and then suffered the consequences. The sailors from the Spanish Armada, we never really hear about, but the Spanish Armada, the sailors were offloaded at ports after the Spanish had fled. Um, nobody had bothered to provide food for them. They hadn't been paid, so they had no money. They died and begged and starved uh, until the uh, British fleet, the English fleet commander, finally, out of his own wealth, um, distributed wages to uh, the sailors. There are other examples, too, of, uh, of leaders who win um, major battles, like the uh, Roman commander at the Battle of Chalons, which defeated, or, di or didn't defeat Attila, mm -hmm. the Hun, uh, Flavius Aetius, he returned to Rome covered in glory because he'd stopped the Huns, um, and his emperor was so jealous that he uh, beat him to death with a meat hook. It's not funny. <laughs> Ironic, yeah. So where you, where you think the victory, in fact, you know, ought to be something sweet to savour, uh, it, it's often something which the ordinary soldiers, if they don't get the booty they've been promised, um, or they, they, you know, they, they don't get the rewards of plenty of food and water following, uh, can often be as badly off uh, as the people they've defeated. That's particularly true of injuries, um, because the one thing about the battlefield, and it's actually true right through the Second World War, despite penicillin, despite improved medicine and so on, there were plenty of cases in the Second World War where the wounded were left on the battlefield, often to be finished off, or they were carried back but then died of their wounds because there wasn't effective medical provision. Um, that's something which, again, you find right across the whole period of the battles that I've been describing in the book. So awful was that, of course, that at the Battle of uh, Solferino uh, in northern Italy, which freed Italy from Habsburg rule, um, uh, a young Swiss um, businessman uh, happened to turn up um, Henri Dunant, he saw the condition on the battlefield where there were thousands of Austrian wounded and French wounded and Italian wounded. The Austrian medical teams had all left. They retreated in panic. Um, and the Austrian uh, soldiers, wounded soldiers, had nobody to help them. Dunant organized the local cities to provide uh, bandages and food and so on and so on. Uh, I was so horrified at the site that, as probably many of you know, he went back to Switzerland and founded the British, uh, sorry, and founded the International uh, Red Cross. Now, all of this suggests, of course, that battlefields are places that you don't really want to be, and that's why it's, I think, important for us as historians to be able to explain as fully as possible why people stay and fight. Um, what are the dynamics? the social dynamics, the psychological dynamics uh, that keep people fighting. Now, the last thing I want to say is, in fact, not about the battles and the battlefield, but the extent to which quite a number of the battles in this book end up developing a kind of life of their own, a mythic life, a legendary life. But the battle, in fact, need not be particularly important, but for some reason it's taken up by a particular society or community or empire, symbolic of something, uh, it becomes a, a source of their identity. It, in other words, develops an historical life which is distinct from the actual fighting that goes on on the battlefield. And the battle as a cultural construct, uh, rather than a single event, is an interesting phenomenon. Now, the one we all know about is the Battle of Britain, of course, which is not a myth, it's a legend. Um, but that's built into 
the development of a British identity since 1940, a very important part of that identity. It's a battle that almost everybody knows something about. Uh, and it survived uh, in its legendary form as David against the, um, the German Goliath, even though the history suggests, of course, that if anything, uh, the um, balance of forces was the other way around. But another example, and it's one in the book, and it's an interesting example, is the famous Battle on the Ice. Now, have any of you seen the film of Alexander Nevsky, in which the Teutonic Knights are coming across the uh, ice, not realizing, of course, how brittle the ice is, and they finally disappear into the ice, and Russia is saved. Uh, this became a very important uh, uh, legendary battle for the Soviet system in the 1930s, and Eisenstein produced his film, Alexander Nevsky. Uh, it was going to be shown as a warning uh, about uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, in fact, very shortly afterwards, uh, Stalin signed the German-Soviet pact, and so the film was put uh, in a cupboard and taken out again in June uh, 1941, when it became really one of the most important themes throughout the, um, the, the uh, German-Soviet war, propaganda themes on the Soviet side. Alexander Nevsky. But in fact, historians have gone back recently to examine the evidence for this battle, and they can't find any. There are a couple of medieval manuscripts which were produced quite a long time after the battle itself. One was from several centuries after the battle itself. But the very first one, which even talks about Alexander Nevsky doing anything, uh, says that he met some knights, Lithuanian knights, uh, and that they fell on the grass uh, which rather ruins the, the uh, battle on the ice image. So worried was, uh, were the Soviet authorities by the doubt being cast on the nature of the battle that they sent uh, a, a high-powered archaeological team to Lake Pipus, where the battle is supposed to have taken place. And they spent months digging in the ground. They went into the lake, into the silt underneath, and dug and dug and dug. And they could not find a single piece of archaeological evidence that there'd been a battle there. Uh, Pipers is perhaps the most extreme example of battle simply as myth, in fact. I mean, it suited uh, the emerging Russian state when the Nevsky myth was talked about in the 18th and 19th century. It suited the Soviet state, of course, because of its anti-German message. But of all the battles, and I, I mean, I describe it as best we can in the book, uh, it, it's a battle about which we know nothing uh, with any certainty. So battles do, as I've said, develop a kind of life of their own, be, if you like, beyond the battle. I've taken two examples, but there are plenty of others in the book, I think, that you could uh, look at. Finally, I want to talk about the end of battle. So I talked about the beginning of battle, which we've uh, managed to locate in Pharaonic Egypt uh, thousands of years ago. But strategists in the United States... I've been talking about yet another revolution in military affairs, or RMA. Um, there have been several in the course of the 20th century. But a new revolution in military affairs, which is the end of battle. They're arguing that you won't get conventional battles anymore. Uh, they will be simply electronic battles. There'll be battles fought with drones and so on. Uh, there'll be battles in space. Or, and perhaps most important for the revolution in military affairs, is that there will be psychological battles, that you will somehow psych out the enemy without actually having to meet the enemy on the battlefield. Well, this argument has met, I think, with a certain amount of scepticism. And after working on battles for the last 3,000 years, uh, I'm afraid to say that, in my view, too, 
we haven't seen the end of it. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 14th of October 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.